Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Antioch Church. My name is Pastor Andy. Delighted that you're worshipping with us this morning. Well, we're in the week four of a four-part teaching series in relation to our identity as a church. We've changed our name from Antioch Community Church in Wheaton to Antioch Church. Uh, we're going to have the tagline Chicago as it relates to any internal communication. And as we've focused on our identity, we've also been outlining what our mission statement is. And today we're going to be talking through what our core ministry values are. As you set off on a journey, you want to head true north. And so it's important before we embark on chapter three together, a period of revival and growth, that we know that we're going in the right direction. So friends, will you bow your heads as I lead us in prayer? Father God, thank you that you are Lord of Lords. Thank you that we encounter you in salvation in a life-changing manner. Thank you, Lord, that you disciple us. You grow us from the inside out and help us to follow you, Lord. And thank you that you call us to your mission as well. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As we look at our identity as a church or even individuals, the key factor to our identity, that which is of eternal significance, is how we answer the question Jesus asks, which is, who do you say I am? He asks Peter this in Mark 8, and Peter responds, Christ the Messiah. All of us are responding to that question, whether we are aware of it or not. We're either living as Jesus, as King of Kings, or we're living with ourselves, or being in charge with no other thought to Christ. That's how I lived the first 26 years of my life. I didn't grow up in a Christian home, and I had a of very basic understanding of who Jesus was. Basic being, I think he lived, and I know he died, and I know he was a good person. But I didn't really understand that he was the Messiah. That all changed on February the 10th, 2003. I'd never been to church, but I was invited to a church event by a colleague that I was working with. And it was an event titled Christianity Explored. It was going on for five weeks on a Monday night in a coffee shop. And I went along on the first night and I heard for the first time something completely surprising, something which I'd never thought true. And that was that the Gospels were historically trustworthy. Up until that point, I thought they were probably mythical or had changed through the years. But I found out that they're historically trustworthy. And not only that, but Jesus did not just say he was a teacher or a healer. That was the impression I'd had of him. He said that he was God. And he was so convinced, and he said it, that he went to the cross on behalf of it and died. So at that time, I suddenly had a presented with evidence that Jesus was a real person. And he said that he was God. There was no denying it. And so what was I going to do with that information? Well, I spoke to a table leader after the uh, event, explained who I was, uh, my desire not to be me anymore. And the person said, well, pray for Jesus to come into your life. So that night at midnight, so it was just going into February the 11th, I prayed for Jesus to come into my life. And I encountered God. It was 
real is probably the best way I can describe it. So as I prayed for forgiveness and saying to Jesus, I want to live for you now, uh, please come into my life. I felt this warmth flooding through me. I felt uh, this incredible release at the same time, like a huge weight had been lifted off my shoulders and replaced with a warm inflowing of forgiveness and love. And my first thoughts were, oh my goodness, this is real. This wasn't something I was imagining up uh, to make myself feel better. It, it was a real, tangible experience. And I encountered God in that moment, and it changed everything. Over the next few weeks, I understood that not only was I completely forgiven, but Christ was King of Kings, and my role here on earth was to build His kingdom. Up until that point, I'd been living on the throne of my life and not doing a very good job of it. So I was happy to hand over controls to him. But handing over the controls to him did not mean that he was going to be serving me and building my own kingdom, but I was to build his. I was his adopted, forgiven son. And if you are interested in adoption, if you go to adoption agencies, you'll typically find that uh, children over the age of seven, there's a lot more of them available, as people don't necessarily uh, want to adopt an older child. Uh, they prefer to adopt a younger child where they can have an influence on their life. It felt like, uh, as a teenager, I'd been wandering my whole life, not knowing who my uh, heavenly parents were, and it, I felt like I'd been completely adopted and forgiven. It felt like I'd been plucked out uh, of darkness and being in the uh, jungle of my life and then set upon solid ground in light. I suddenly became aware of an eternal inheritance I had. And not only the eternal inheritance I had, but a living relationship with God. It wasn't just a distant Heavenly Father, but I could speak to him uh, as I would a friend. It was a two-way conversation. What you find as a new believer, God loves to answer the majority of your prayers. He really wants to show you that he is real. Now, later on, that changes. He has different reasons for not answering on our prayers. But early on, he would answer so many of my prayers. It kept affirming how real he was. One of the most uh, shocking prayers that he answered uh, was my nephew, Joseph. I think he's about the age of five. No, four or five, had always been a really sickly child. And at the time I was uh, dating Shelley, I think it was 2003 or the beginning of 2004, and we were in the cinema, and we received a call from my elder sister, and she phoned us saying, uh, Joseph's in the hospital, and they've done some tests on him, and he's got leukemia. And I remember just everything collapsing around me in my thought life at that moment. So we left the cinema. Shelley and I were praying fervently in the car, driving to the hospital to be uh, by my sister's side with the rest of the family and my nephew at this crucial time. And we've been praying, God, just please may this not be real. May none of this be true. And as we were approaching the hospital, we received another phone call. And Shelley took the call and then shared the news with me and I broke down and we had to pull the car over to the side of the road. And it was that they had run a secondary test and they found, it never happened to them before, that they found that there had been a blockage in the centrifugal system that was separating the different types of blood. And so it had given a reading that Joseph had leukemia the first time 
and they ran the test a second time and it gave a reading that he didn't and they were baffled the doctors as to how that could have happened they weren't aware of it happening before now it may well have just been a big forgiveness a, a big coincidence sorry but i knew that i'd prayed to god that it wouldn't be real that he wouldn't have leukemia and then that came about so as I was fully alive, it felt like I had this heavenly father who was close to me. He had all the power in the world and could answer everything. What this tremendous sense of freedom. Very similar to the freedom I felt around at the age of five years old when I got my first bike at Christmas. Uh, my elder sister got a yellow bike, I got a red one, and on Christmas Day uh, we went out with our training wheels and started to ride it. My dad gave me a little push, and then as I rode off I felt completely free. I probably felt more grown up than I was, but there was this sense of, wow, the whole world is there for the taking. And as that newfound faith and relationship with God was there, as I had encountered him in salvation and encountered him on a regular basis, it felt like the whole world was there for the taking. Now, what I found is uh, I really landed on my feet. I had someone to show me the way as a Christian. So the person that led me to faith uh, was also the person who discipled me, and he showed me the way to go. Uh, the Christian life is a lot like a long-distance journey, and I had someone who'd walked the path before and was letting me know what the uh, terrain was like. So his name was Joel Willits. Uh, he discipled me, or met one-on-one -on -one with me, on a weekly basis for 18 months. He's now a professor in North Park University in Chicago. Uh, he discipled me one-on-one. -on -one. We went over some navigator's material, it was titled Growing Strong in God's Family, and we developed a strong friendship over this time. As we went through the material, I learned how to have a quiet time with God, how to pray. I remember Joel was the first person to teach me to pray out loud, and it felt really weird and vulnerable. Uh, but all of those early baby steps I was taking as a Christian, uh, he was guiding me and letting me know what was normal and helping me to see the obstacles on the way. We also studied the biblical assurances. So it wasn't just feelings that I had about God. There were truths in the Bible with assurances of forgiveness, assurances of salvation, assurances of answered prayer. And I learned that following Jesus looked like listening to him and obeying. Well, six months or so into my discipleship, Joel went to uh, Germany for a period of time, and I had a, a relapse. Um, of one of my addictions. And as I connected with Joel about it, he shared with me, he said, Andy, just dust yourself off and carry on going. It was a really big turning moment for me. The old Andy would have uh, messed up and decided I have to punish myself now. And so my temptation was to be too embarrassed to go back to God, to show him that I was sorry by uh, doing some kind of weird inner penance and then only when I'd got myself cleaned again would I uh, go back to him. He said, no Andy, just dust yourself off. And I had to learn and accept that God loves me and has forgiven me and so that I have to accept it and not fight it. And so I did. I went straight back into that relationship with him, asked for forgiveness and uh, that was a, a huge uh, change in my life as well. So salvation had been a big change and then messing up and then going back to God and still experiencing that uh, 
measure of uh, eternal forgiveness changed again. As I learned that God loves me and that I was his, his adopted forgiven son, I also learned to pass it on. This looked a bit like a breakup. It was kind of weird. After 18 months, uh, Joel had been talking about discipleship and how it's important. He said, now, we're going to start meeting on a weekly basis now, and I'd like you to pass on what we have experienced to someone else. I was like, this kind of feels like we're breaking up. And he goes, no, it's not. It, the, the aim is you receive it and then you pass it on and you make disciples. Jesus has made a disciple of you and you're to make disciples of other people. And Joel and I are still very close friends to this day. So it wasn't the end of the friendship. It wasn't the end of the mentoring, but it was the end of the weekly intensive discipleship. Around the same time, I felt a call to be a pastor and I spoke to the uh, vicar of the church I was at in Cambridge. His name was uh, Reverend Mark Ashton and he said to me, Andy, if you want to be a, a pastor, it's all about leading people to Christ. So uh, pray to God that you could lead someone to Christ in the next three months. And if you do that, uh, then maybe God is calling you to be a pastor. I said, okay. Uh, as I was driving home thinking, wow, that is a, that's quite a <laughs> tall order. But I knew that God had changed so much in my life already I had a faith that he could make it happen if he wanted it to happen. The next Sunday service I was in church uh, at the 11 o'clock service and a lady came up to me introduced herself and handed me a photo of her son. He was a similar age to me she goes my son Ben um, I've heard of your story and how God's changed your life and I would love for you to connect with him and meet up with him. So I phoned up Ben uh, we started a good friendship and he came to faith and I discipled him on a weekly basis as well with very much the same materials that Joel had discipled me on. And again, uh, when a year was passed, I said to Ben, now you need to pass this on. And we're still very good friends to this day. All of this time, uh, my life was described as being on fire. Uh, that's a weird kind of phrase, but I know it was used in Christian circles. And people would say, Andy, if your life's on fire, all the, of your experiences with God, you should write them down because sometimes they will go and you won't feel the same temperature of your relationship. And you need to look back at how he was working in your life to keep you encouraged. I remember in my naivety and arrogance thinking that's, that's a dumb thing. Like, why would my temperature for God ever go down? He had given me all these new desires of loving God and loving uh, others. He'd make me want to be more holy. He'd wanted me to be more and more like Jesus, made me really passionate about passing the gospel on. I couldn't foresee a time when I would uh, need to be reminded of uh, God's love and how I'd encountered him. Well... Uh, as for most of us, we can feel a strong relationship with God when we first come to faith. But the problem is, life happens. Another way of saying it is life punches you in the face. Uh, if it hasn't yet, it will. I'm sorry to disappoint you. And it will, as you, even if you're a Christian. In fact, uh, the teaching series which we're beginning uh, later on this month is in James. And in one of the first chapters, James uh, is writing to the dispersed Christians everywhere saying, suffering is part of the Christian faith. Temptations are part of growing up as a Christian. And life happens and life is difficult. 
is similar to losing the training wheels on your bike. So within a week, I was really keen uh, after having my first bike of uh, riding without the training wheels. So my dad took them off and he'd watch me and I fell over a few times. But you know that if you want this freedom, you keep pushing through. Now the challenge when life happens uh, is it doesn't feel like you ask for the training wheels to go off, but you keep falling over. And my motivation to get back on as a young child was so that I would have the full freedom of riding without stabilizers. And I knew my dad was close by. When life happens to us, it feels like the training wheels have gone and it doesn't feel like God is anywhere nearby. It doesn't feel like there's a good reason for taking the training wheels off. And it feels really hard to get back on the bike Another way of describing life happens is that, that weeds grow up in the garden of your soul. Now, as I learned a new phrase as a Christian, one was being on fire. The other one was uh, tending the garden of your soul. It sounds very poetical. I'm aware now, having lived in America, it's very much an English uh, Christian phrase. Uh, but essentially what happens is God has uh, given you a garden and uh, discipleship relationships help you see when weeds are coming up and you can get rid of the weeds and allow all the beauty and fertility that God has provided to grow into this thing of beauty. Well, weeds grow up super, super quickly, even just this summer. One week I didn't have any weeds and the next week I had a load of weeds in the garden. Now, I've had my father-in-law, uh, mother-in-law, staying with us. One of the first things my father-in-law did uh, when he saw our garden was that he, uh, over a course of two days, got rid of every single weed, uh, cut the grass, made it look completely presentable. Now, I had knew it was really bad, but I didn't know where to start. I thought, there's too much here to begin. I don't have a weed whacker. I bought a machete that was blunt. There's a whole lot of different excuses for me not to... Uh, tend to the garden and it took uh, my father-in-law coming over and tending to the garden for me now to desire to want to maintain it and it's so much nicer now it's a place you want to sit in it's a place you're happy for people to see if they're coming over to visit well the garden of our soul is really really similar the weeds uh, the things of this world can grow subtly and they can also grow quickly uh, Jesus had something to say about this in Matthew 13, verses 18 to 23. I'll read this to you now. If you turn to your uh, turn to this in your Bibles, you can follow it along in your apps, or alternatively, it's on the screen behind. Jesus had been telling stories to his disciples, explaining about the kingdom of God, and he's explained about a sower who sowed different bits of seed upon different areas. And then later on he explains what this parable meant. And he does this in verse 18 to 23. So Jesus says, Listen then to what the parable of a sower means. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in their heart. This is the seed sown along the path. The seed falling on rocky ground refers to someone who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. 
The seed falling among the thorns refers to someone who hears the word, but the worries of this life and deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, making it unfruitful. But the seed falling on good soil refers to someone who hears the word and understands it. This is the one who produces a crop, yielding a hundred, sixty or thirty times what was sown. Uh, later on in the message, we'll be looking about how to uh, keep good soil in your uh, faith. But for now, we'll look at the impact of uh, life happening, of suffering and temptation coming along. Or the busyness of life just uh, diminishing our passion for God. And I'm going to look at this on an individual basis and then how this impacts the local church. What I would say before I do that is I really think without Joel helping me after my relapse, without Joel saying just dust yourself up and pick yourself uh, on, uh, I would have been very much like the seed that was on uh, shallow ground. So I hear the word, I receive it with joy, but when trouble comes, I quickly fall away. But God in his mercy had put Joel in my life to help me uh, understand the real character of God and to go straight back to him. Anyway, so what happens when life happens is we have a decreased passion for God. We have a decreased passion for ourselves. We have a decreased passion for others. And we have a decreased passion for Jesus' purpose for Jesus's purposes in the world. We lose focus on, on who God is and his character. And as a consequence, uh, we start to have believe a false identity. Now, the more you grow in your Christian walk, you will realize that your identity in Christ is as a beloved child. Now, early on in your relationship, you might think, okay, I've moved from being made in the image of God to when I've accepted Jesus as my Lord and Savior, I then become a child of God. But over time and on the other side of suffering, you realize that you're actually beloved. Well, when life happens, your understanding of being beloved gets very, very small. And your pre-formative uh, identity, it's the identity which you formed as a younger person, the identity which you believed about yourself before you came to Christ starts getting very, very big. So for some people, it might be, uh, no one's going to like me. For someone else, it might be, I'm only ever going to hurt people. Someone else, it might be, I'm a nuisance to people. For others, it could be, if people really knew me, they'd think I was a fake or wouldn't like me. So when suffering happens, we forget that we're beloved and these lies about ourselves, which we had adopted in childhood, which we coach ourselves with in our inner voice, in our head, become loud. And as a consequence, we just, uh, it's been so long since we've had a, an encounter with God that we, we wonder if he is real. We wonder if he is awake. So he might be real, but is he even paying attention? Or if he is awake and he's paying attention, then we doubt that God could even be good. Because why would he be letting this suffering happen? This happens in the local church as well, so it happens on an individual basis. But on the local church, we can completely have that decreased passion for God, self, others, and Jesus' purposes in the world. And in the States, I'm very much aware that this is the, the most consumer-oriented culture in the world. 
just have to look on any church web page and you'll see uh, reviews of the church. Now some reviews are really helpful as it refers to uh, the type of teaching, what the children's ministries are like. But you'll also get the reviews where it feels like you have a very high standard as a customer and if the church doesn't meet all of your expectations uh, of how it's going to serve you, uh, then we put really difficult reviews on. And so over time, our view of church turns into more of a cruise ship than a battleship. Now, Pastor Drew spoke about this a couple of weeks ago, and that's a sermon's well worth a listen to online. But when we view church as a cruise ship instead of a battleship, we are more concerned with Christ building our kingdom than we are with ourselves building Christ's. And so as life happens, as we develop this cruise ship mentality, confusion and bitterness grow greater than clarity and love. Despair uh, crushes hope. And the whole uh, basics of encountering God, relationship, discipleship, and living a life on mission drop off the radar. Before, we've been on fire for Christ, and at best, uh, we now become lukewarm. And the results are serious and tragic. I'm going to share with you a, a story I read the other day that I thought uh, it was worth passing on. It reminds me of the tremendous resources we have in our relationship with God. But when suffering and persecution or temptation comes... Uh, we feel alone and are not aware of all of the resources that are available to us. Here it is. A fuel truck driver was on a delivery run in northern Canada during a raising blizzard in the days before CB radios and cell phones. While travelling along a dark, deserted stretch between two isolated towns, the truck skidded off the road and wound up hopelessly lost. As the storm passed and the sunrise came, the temperature dropped to nearly 40 degrees below zero. The driver stayed with the truck in the hope that someone would pass by and rescue him. After several hours of waiting, he ran out of diesel fuel. Without the engine running, the truck's heater was useless. When police found him later the next day, frozen to death. This kind of tale is not uncommon in northern parts of Canada. There's hardly a winter goes by where someone isn't lost. But what makes this story so striking is the driver had nearly 10,000 gallons of diesel fuel in the tanker he was hauling. Now, at first glance, it seems like there's probably no way to move it from the tanker to the truck in order to keep it running. But there must have been some way. The driver could have saved his life. He had just tried something, anything. They had just focused his energy as focused his energy on using resources that he had in a situation he found himself he would have survived. It was easy to read that story and think, "Wow, that guy was dumb, but the reality is when we are in a situation we didn't expect to find ourselves in, when we are cold, when we are frightened, when we feel alone, when we feel abandoned. The things which seem obvious and the resources all around us seem invisible to us. And so it is with our relationship with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. As suffering and temptation come, we can lose sight of him, lose sight of his 
commandments, lose sight of his great commission and lose sight of ourselves and his purposes in the world. So what is the antidote? So we come to faith in Christ. We have a strong encounter with God. We have a life of discipleship, becoming more like Christ. And we are, find it easier to share our faith with others. Then life happens. And it seems like God is nowhere to be found. Seems like he doesn't care anymore. We're not even sure if we want to follow him. And it seems really hard to share the faith with others. We're happy. We're struggling enough. We're content enough just to be able to hold on to our faith ourselves. Well, the solution is to keep it simple, to go back to the basics. Uh, go back to the basics as an individual. Go back to the basics as a local church. Now, there are some conditions where it feels like pursuing God uh, is impossible. Uh, some of those I've had myself. So if you have depression or PTSD or going through a significant period of suffering, it doesn't feel uh, you're pursuing God, but it doesn't feel like you're getting any closer to him. I want you to know that he is, it's like you're riding the bicycle and your father is watching you. You can't see him, but he's watching you and he wants you to be able to ride that bike and be fully free, freer than you were with training wheels. And I assure you, you get to the other side of it. I got to the other side of it myself. So as I'm talking about uh, going back to the basics, please don't open this mail if it's not for you. If you have tried and tried and pursued after God and it seems he isn't there, know that I'm praying for you. Know that we would like to pray for you after the service. For those of us that aren't in, in that season of life, for us as a local church, we want to keep things simple, which is keeping our eyes open to the character of God, the commands of God, and the commission of God. So our missional statement is based on that. It is that we love God, we love people, and doing so, we change the world. That's based on the great commandment and the great commission. And as part of the Antioch church planting movement, as part of an Antioch local church, we... Uh, fulfill loving God, loving people, and changing the world by focusing on three core ministry values. They are encountering God, relational discipleship, and life on mission through the local church. Uh, doing these raises the temperature of our relationship with God. It keeps the fire stoked. It's a form of attentive and active garden maintenance. Uh, these are directly from our webpage, Antioch uh, Chicago, we have a link to AntiochWaco.com and Antioch.org, which has all of, our, uh, all of our core ministry values. First one is encountering God. Follow this along on the slides, please. Encountering God refers to our value for helping individuals come face to face with Jesus, whether this be through Sunday services, personal evangelism, prayer ministry, or personal devotional times. We believe this is what people truly need. They need to encounter Jesus, the Father, and the Holy Spirit, not just once, but over and over again. We are committed to bringing people into those kinds of encounters however we can. We look for ways to get ourselves out of the way and get people into God's presence. Second core ministry value is relational, sorry, excuse me, relational discipleship. Relational discipleship means we do life together and have an intentional element to the relationship where individuals help each other grow closer to God. 
This can happen one-on-one, -on -one, like in a marriage, mentorship or friendship, or in community-oriented groups like life groups or groups of two and three. We believe that lasting transformation happens when we do discipleship in intentional, encouraging, challenging and accountable community environments. We look for ways to make this happen. And our third core ministry value is life on mission. Life on mission is our commitment to reach our cities, our nation and the nations of the earth. We believe the church is called to empower every single person to live on mission in their unique sphere of influence. We believe the church is the front line for fulfilling the Great Commission, and we seek to train and send people to plant churches in our nation and among those unreached with the gospel around the world. So those are core ministry values, a quick bit of explanation around them. Uh, a core ministry value means that Whatever is going on in our church, we would like it to fulfill some of those elements. And if there's a choice between doing one activity or another in the church, the one that more fulfills those core ministry values would always be the one that was chosen. Now, these core ministry values uh, actually relate to my testimony. I was really pleased. I've been in the Antioch uh, church and movement for four months. I was really pleased as I was looking at these core ministry values. So that was exactly what was happening in my life as a new believer that was so helpful. And I'm really encouraged as pastor of this church to pass these on and to be uh, of a community where we're committed to doing these things. Now, uh, we spoke on the Trinity in the last teaching series. And although they are uh, each distinct persons, they are one essence. Now, each of these uh, core values can look like they are separate, but the reality is they all form together. They're completely interrelated. Example, our Sunday services. Uh, we have Encountering God through music. We have Encountering God uh, through prophet prophetic words being spoken. So we have prophetic words spoken before service and sometimes during service. So, for example, before service today, a uh, gentleman approached me and said he felt that God had said to him that he should share with me that we should offer ministry time to people that have been impacted uh, by childhood sexual abuse and would have found news items in the last week very triggering. And so we'll absolutely be doing that for you after the service today. It's also times to heal and pray for, he pray for healing after the service. Also an element of relational discipleship in Sunday services where we do life together. We receive uh, some teaching and there's interaction as well. It also looks like life on mission as we are refilled on a Sunday, as we're filled up, ready for the week ahead. And we can also invite people to church with us. Now, life groups are really similar. It's like a mini Sunday service, but the difference in relational discipleship between a life group and a Sunday service is that there is high interaction low level of teaching in a life group as we just work through the Sunday message, whereas in a Sunday service is a high level of teaching and a low level of interaction. A life group has the advantage of hangout time together, studying together, and praying together. And like a Sunday service, life groups can be encouraging and places where I invite people to. Now, relational discipleship, that's kind of one-on-one -on -one discipleship that I received from Joel. Obviously, uh, encountering God can still happen in those environments where we listen to God. We speak to him in a conversational manner. 
There's a high level of teaching and interaction. And it helps us live life on mission as we are refilled and learn how to live our lives as a Christian. Uh, one of the ways which you can encounter God in discipleship relationships as well is we, as we're uh, caring for one another, helping each other tend to the gardens, pointing out where weeds might be and speaking into each other's lives. Uh, you can speak to God as well in those moments. Recently, I was I finished one study with a gentleman I was discipling, and we were not sure of what study to do next. So I said, well, why don't we pray about it? And as I was praying out loud, suddenly a book which I'd studied at seminary maybe 10 years before popped into my head. So I looked at it. We both got a copy, and we're going through it now, and it is the perfect uh, material for us to be discipled. So there's still this ongoing encounter with God. Finally, final uh, way we have discipleship is personal devotions. And this is an insight I got this week. So often in messages, the application will be personal devotions. I'm not going to go into it now, because I'm sure I'll go into it in different messages. But here's why personal devotions are so important. God is the best at discipling us one-on-one. -on -one. It's not just once a week. He is available any time we want. And he wants us to grow even more than we do. So as a church, uh, we go back to the basics and our core ministry values are put on the basics of encountering God, relational discipleship, and life on mission. Your application today, twofold. One, pursue God take ownership of our spiritual life. There's a way that we can do this is through the discipleship app, which I referenced uh, a couple of weeks ago. If you go onto antiochwaco.com forward slash resources, you can find it there, and it can help you with your quiet times with God. But the biggest takeaway, other than pursuing God and taking ownership, would be make one disciple this year, just one disciple this year, who you'll spend a one-on-one -on -one investment in their life for 12 months. And then, if you then move on to discipling another person, making another disciple just that year, and the person who you've discipled, he commits to the same, you can change the world. You might think, yeah, I can change the world in uh, 10,000 years if I did that. Actually, you can change the world. You can reach the entire world for Christ within 35 years by committing to making just one disciple this year. Here's how. Uh, it's related to chess is how I'm going to explain it. So chess, uh, there's some conflict as to when it was invented, but uh, most people say it's invented in India in the 6th century. It was originally called Chat Uranga, and there is a story around it where the guy that invented chess presented it to a wealthy ruler. That wealthy ruler was delighted in this game. Uh, all of its potentials, its million different options that you have for playing it. And he really wanted to reward the person that invented it and introduced him to it. And so he goes, what, whatever do you want, I can give you anything. What is it you desire? And the gentleman said, I just require some food for my family. And he said, well, we can get you sackfuls of grain. And the gentleman said, no, I, I, I tell you what, why don't we put one piece of grain on one chessboard piece, and the next piece, we double that piece of grain. So it moves from one to two. And the next square, we move from two to four, and then from four to eight. And the number of grains of rice we get to at the end of the chessboard, that's how much you can give me. 
And the ruler said, absolutely, thinking he's probably at best going to give a cartload of grain. Now, there are 64 pieces on a chessboard. It is an 8 by 8 uh, series of squares. And this mathematical principle that this shows is exponential growth. And what happens is uh, it grows, it seems to go very slowly, like 1 to 2, 2 to 4, 4 to 8, 8 to 16, 16 to 32, 32 to 64, and so on. Halfway round the uh, chessboard is 32 squares. Do you know how many grains it would have been on 32 squares? 2 billion. Grain, uh, square 33, 4 billion. Square 34, 8 billion. Square 35, 16 billion. And so on until the 64th square. Now the story goes that the ruler suddenly realized that he had been tricked fact, the level of grain that the, he'd promised to give the man was greater than his wealth. He got so angry that he put the gentleman in prison. That aside, uh, world population is currently 7.2 billion people. It's projected at 2050 to be 9.6 billion. So how many years would it take of discipling one person, making a disciple, discipling them, and then switching out to a new person after another year. So it's like one to two, two to four, four to eight, and so on again. Uh, 35 years it would take, you'd be at 16 billion. So by 2053, just from you, and you can insert your name here, uh, we can change the world. So there's exponential growth. There's exponential growth in discipleship. It's the very method Jesus himself used. And what's a real advantage about one-on-one -on -one discipleship where we're really invested in each other's lives uh, is that it helps us keep the soil good. Now, without Joel, I probably wouldn't be a Christian now. I'd have felt that I'd failed God and would uh, not be here anymore. And I'm deeply grateful for how he helped keep the soil good. I used to be at a church where you'd hold huge outreach events and you'd have as many as 250 people raise their hands to accept Christ. And we used to offer a discipleship program afterwards. Do you guess how many people were interested in attending that discipleship program? Between 12 and 15. In fact, I remember some of them uh, because they're here. Three of them are still here with us in our church service today. And it's through the investment of one-on-one -on -one discipleship that uh, Christian lives are really secured. So friends, you can make one disciple this year. We can change the world. That's why as a church, you know, we love God, we love people, we change the world. And we're committed to creating environments where you encounter God, environments where there is relational discipleships, and environments which encourages life on mission. So how do we make just one disciple this year? Pray to God. When I pray to God about making a disciple, I was given Ben exact next week. Now, it might not be as quick as that, but trust me, there are people out there who God wants you to disciple. There's people out there who God wants you to lead to Christ. So commit to praying to make one disciple this year. Have a plan. Use our discipleship app, and we will help you along the way. Let's pray. Father God, thank you that you are good, that you are love. 
that you've given us the great commandment, which is to love you with all of our heart, all of our mind, and all of our soul. And the second is like it, to love our neighbor as ourselves. You've also given us the great commission, which is to make disciples of all nations. Father, you have given us your authority. You are with us until the end of the age. Oh, that help us to attempt great things for you. Help us to expect great things from you. Lord, help us as a church to keep things simple. Help us to care and encourage along those who are having a hard time encountering you. At the same time, Lord, let us keep it simple as a church. Help us to encounter you daily. Help us to be intentional with discipleship. And help us to share your good news with others. In Jesus' name, amen.